little bit more about me. Those are all board games because I love board games. I always like buying new board games for the guys and sometimes we play too. And we even have like a, an Amiga, like a Commodore Amiga there because I'm a huge fan of like old school computers. Yeah, this is our office. Hey everybody, welcome to our final episode of season five of Rehash, a Web3 podcast. I'm your host, Diana Chen, and today we'll be ending season five with a bane by speaking with Roz about a variety of topics ranging from building games for his siblings as a child to starting his own business at age 14 to forming anonymous relationships online and so much more. Roz is the CEO and co-founder of Guild, a membership management tool that helps you automate requirements, roles, and rewards for your community. We start off this episode by talking about Roz's childhood, how he learned to program at the young age of six or seven, how he grew up designing board games for his younger siblings because he wasn't allowed very much screen time to play the computer games he actually wanted to play, and how his love of all things games, the strategy, the lore, the escape into an alternate universe, all impacted his future decisions and successes as an investor and builder. Roz made it big back in DeFi summer of 2020 and shares some of his best investment tips with us, like how to identify entry and exit points and how to stay objective in this space. He talks about how investing has helped him become a better builder and some of the things that he's still learning as a successful founder today. We then get into a conversation around DAOs, how he defines what constitutes a DAO, and whether he thinks DAOs have peaked yet. I asked him about how Guild has been able to strike such a good balance between being a well-organized and successful company while also running on a relatively very flat organizational structure and championing a lot of the ethos of DAO organizations that typically tend to lead to chaos. And he attributes a lot of that success to the thinking and work of his brother and co-founder Bruno, who we'll hopefully have on the podcast next season. This was the perfect episode to end the season on and definitely one of my personal favorites. And I know I've been saying this a lot lately, but the fact is that this season was probably my favorite one yet. It's just so inspiring to me that even in the midst of a bear market where sentiments around crypto and Web3 are so low that there are still so many bright minds that are still so dedicated to building and furthering the potential that crypto and blockchain can have on the future of the internet. We'll be starting our next round of guest nominations and voting in a little over a week. So make sure you're following us on Twitter at RehashWeb3 or join our Discord community so you can stay up to date on all the happenings around that. And if you don't yet have a Rehash podcast NFT and want to help us decide our guests for next season, make sure you grab one at RehashWeb3.xyz before the next round of nominations starts. And if you have any questions, please DM us at RehashWeb3 and we'll be sure to help you out there. Roz was nominated by Gary Shane and voted onto the podcast by Brenner Spear, Reka, Richie Bonilla, David Phelps, Kyle, Andy Boyan, Justin Conley, Anae, and Gary Shane. So without further ado, here is my conversation with Roz. Hey, Roz, welcome to the podcast. Thank you so much for taking the time to be here today. Thank you for having me. Of course. And you just gave me a beautiful tour of your office right before this. Guild has the most incredible office. You've got some game rooms, a Bitcoin ATM. I was going to ask you, by the way, does the Bitcoin ATM still work or is it just like... An oh, it could work, but we use it to set music in the office. 
or, or lights. You can also control the lights and some other parameters of the office. Wow. Is it like one of those jukebox machines where you can just play music? Yeah, exactly, exactly. You can also spy on your colleagues because I think you can see the camera footages. Oh my, oh my God, I love that. I love that. That's so funny. So I have so much I want to talk to you about. So I, I just want to jump right in. The first thing I want to talk about is going all the way back to when you were a child. I feel slightly creepy knowing all of this about you, but I know that you have a lot of siblings. You're the oldest one. And growing up, you would build board games for your family and for your siblings yeah. to play which I think is super fascinating. And I'm curious, where do you think your fascination with games originally came from? And w tell me more about these board games that you would build for your family as a child. Yeah, so I think this is a relatively weird story as well, because I got introduced to programming when I was six or seven. Like I was literally very young. And because my father was like a huge, or like my father still is a huge computer nerd. And he started teaching me programming but because he also knew that being on the computer all the time could be very unhealthy, I was limited to actually very little computer time when I was young. And not just that, but also like I was only allowed to use Linux. And there was a rule that I can use Linux, the graphical interface, only one hour a day, but I can use Linux all day on the console. So I, I was able to play music or do stuff on my own on the console as a child, but I wasn't able to play games. And I was fascinated by computer games and PlayStation because I wasn't allowed to actually play them. And also it didn't even run on Linux. So even if, when I had graphical interface, it was very difficult to emulate them on Linux. I started recreating them on board and started playing them with my siblings and just like family friends we had. And I, I always loved creating things. And since I'm fascinated with computer games, I started recreating them on board games. And eventually I started recreating them with software as well. So like whenever I was in school and I got access to computers and I was able to like program games, I always did that. I even had bad grades in computer science because of that, because I usually didn't do the tasks. Instead, I developed the games during the classes. <laughs> did you ever think about becoming a game developer, like as your full-time job? Oh yeah, I did. I built multiple game engines as a child and I even like competed in programming. I wanted to become an MMORPG developer. Mm -hmm. That was my dream. I was fascinated with a game called RuneScape and not just that, but some other text-based games and just generally speaking, like multiplayer experiences and role-playing experiences. And I, I always wanted to become part of that industry. But eventually I, I got a little bit distracted during puberty because of curse. And basically <laughs> love the honesty. Yeah. I gave up on programming for a couple of years and then I, I decided to dive deep into business as well because there was another rule in my family that I don't get any pocket money. So I had to figure out ways to make money. And my first ad revenue was when I was like 14 or something. And yeah, I, I was always trying to figure out how to make money online. And, and eventually, I think that's how I got into the crypto space as well. In 2013, when I like saw other people trading this crazy thing called Dogecoin. And like, I knew Bitcoin from the very beginning, but in the beginning, I stayed away from it because it seemed very dangerous because of the deep web, everything. But when I saw Dogecoin, Dogecoin wasn't in the deep, but Dogecoin was everywhere on the internet, like, at least in my circles on Reddit and other online forums. So I got really fascinated by it and just jumped on the train. That's so funny because I used to buy Dogecoin just because I love dogs. 
And it's like a fun meme coin to buy. But I would send it to friends and be like, you know, if you want to receive this Dogecoin, you got to open exactly. a crypto wallet and learn how to do all of that to receive your Dogecoin. So Dogecoin yeah. definitely has a, a special spot in my heart as well. Yeah, to me, it was an absolutely magical experience because I realized that this is actually like a decentralized virtual currency and no one can stop this and we can play with it on the internet. Just me and the other internet natives, basically. But back to the board games, I started creating board games because I didn't have access in the beginning. Then it started becoming a hobby. My siblings really loved the games that I created. And these are mostly like very strategic games. Like they all contain some role-playing elements, but they were like massive strategic games. Like even if they were all about role-playing, you always had to play some long-term strategy to make money or become successful in something. And I think that was also a way I was able to teach my siblings. And eventually this mentoring relationship became business relationship. Like currently I have two companies and both of the companies are run by my brothers. And basically we are business partners and especially my younger brother, he basically grew up on my games and we have a very strong relationship. We understand each other pretty well because I created games for him and he won the games that I created. That's awesome. I love that so much. When it comes to games, would you say it's that strategic element that you're most fascinated by? Or is it the storytelling? Or is it the escape from reality into this alternate world? All of that. I even wrote poems in my game sometimes. And I painted the faces of the characters. I drew the, the weapons and I created entire lores. But usually the lores were created collectively. So not just by me, but everyone was able to contribute to the lore. And not just outside of the game, but sometimes during the game, I realized certain mechanics and I started implementing them on the fly. Basically, we, we shipped in production and started like changing the elements and mechanics of the game and really enjoyed that process. And I learned it at a young age that like, whatever I do, it's always better to do it together with other people. It's always better to get feedback from other people and also to give them the opportunity to contribute wherever or whatever base they feel comfortable. Have you ever wanted to buy an NFT with a group of friends, crowdfund a project, or start a collective, and found yourself stitching together tools manually to help you make your dreams a reality? I certainly have, and that's why I'm excited to tell you about Lore, the Web3 co-ownership platform. Lore lets you seamlessly spin up a shared wallet, pool resources, and coordinate group activity, all in one unified experience. Connect to dApps and make any transaction multiplayer. What you can do together is endless. Go to lore.xyz slash rehash and start a collective today. I was just going to ask you too, what other lessons have you learned from your fascination of games and building board games for your siblings? How have you applied some of those tactics, strategies, learnings to other things that you've done later on in life as an adult, like building guilds, participating in DAOs, investing in companies. Can you share some of those learnings or applications? First of all, like not taking things too seriously, I think is very important. Every gamer sees life a little bit as a game and plays life as a game. And I think it's a very important aspect of a game that it's okay to lose sometimes. You can be super competitive and still be okay with losing. I think that was an important lesson to me. But I also realized what matters to me because through games, I was able to 
understand other people better and understand myself. For example, my attraction to numbers and currencies. And I know this is a meme in the crypto space, but like I seriously telling you that I, I like making numbers up, like <laughs> increasing numbers basically is a huge passion of my, like whatever, if it's a skill or an actual currency or a level or something like it just feels good to be around numbers for me. Some of my favorite creams are almost like spreadsheets and I'm just calculating all the time. I also went to med school, so I'm somewhat familiar with the basics of mathematics. That definitely is an advantage to you and explains a lot of your background and why you're in the space and also explains how you got into investing. You know, you've already told some of your backstory with wanting to make money at a young age because you weren't getting pocket money from your family and then your fascination with numbers. So that to me explains a lot of why you got into investing, which just want to touch on that for a quick second, because you were an investor before you were a builder. Do you see this as a strategic move that you wanted to learn the ins and outs and see other businesses and what they were doing right and wrong before you started your own thing? Yeah, so this is not completely true in a sense that I've always been a builder, like I always build stuff. I was successful at investing first, and I'm just learning how to be successful as a builder. I think starting out as a founder, almost nobody realizes how difficult it's going to be, like how hard it is to have something on your own. And if you already have resources, not necessarily just currencies, but you have a network, you have this, you have that, you can build on the shoulders of giants, basically, then you can much easily like succeed as a builder. I learned that the hard way initially for a very long time, I was trying to bootstrap my things and do everything almost with no cost, but not spending on anything. Like uh, I was really hardcore at just focusing on building and it didn't really work out for me. And eventually I got burned out pretty badly. And after I got seriously burned out, I was 25 or something, I decided, okay, I will stop building. I will just start investing. I will start a company. I, I started a company where basically I didn't really work. My brother started working, but I, I made some business and we made some money and I started investing that money. From the very beginning, I, I identified myself as an investor because I knew that I'm burned out. I don't really want to work. I just want to invest in stuff. I really enjoyed researching literally thousands of crypto projects, like one by one, GitHub, Trunchbase, like all the platforms that you can check. I checked all of them for thousands of projects and then collected them in lists and then prioritized them. And then I built up very nice portfolios. And actually, I think my skill set is still significantly better as a liquid investor, like investing something that I can buy and sell anytime, but not day trading. That's very important. I'm not a trader. I don't know how to throw charts and stuff like I don't care about that. I, I'm an investor in liquid assets in a way that it's fully fundamental. I make research on the development work. I make research on the background of the founder and stuff like that. And, and basically, then I make very calculated bets on certain segments of the industry. And I'm very good at diversification. Too. So basically, that's why I was able to secure my spot as an investor in the space. The last time I went all in to like different cryptocurrencies was literally the day when the WHO announced COVID because everything crashed. And I knew that I'm waiting for this moment. I went all in that day. And basically I bought Ethereum at that day, like at a hundred or something. And that was my previous entry point. And then I started diversifying with my strategies. I did the research on thousands of projects. 
picked around 50 in the beginning and started investing in them in batches, like started investing five projects this big, then another five on this, and then just trying to find the right entry points for certain projects. And that's basically my strategy. That's always trying to find good entry points and good exit points. And if you have a lot of different projects in your portfolio, basically it's a full-time job because you always track them and figure out when to buy, when to sell. But you can always do something without actually like day trading because you are not buying and selling the same project, but you are buying and selling different projects in your portfolio of a hundred projects or something. So I did that until 2021, like February or something, because that was the time when I mean coins appeared and everything. And I realized that, oh gosh, I'm probably not going to do valid in this market because it's not about the fundamentals anymore. Like people just go crazy about the memes and then it trends. So I knew I have to change a strategy. And initially I thought I already had very significant gains in just one year, like from COVID. And I started cashing out in stable coins, but I didn't want to put those stable coins into yield farming because I was also a yield farmer before and I knew how serious protocol risks are. So I just decided to locate these stable coins into companies. And because I had zero network, zero experience or anything, I just started messaging founders on LinkedIn if I can invest in their companies and started figuring out how to allocate money. And actually some of my best early stage investments was just like that. Like I literally just messaged the founder on LinkedIn. He replied back and he allowed me to invest. And those were the best investments. But then I got excited about the feeling of investing in those, because especially during those periods, it was relatively easy to secure gains on early stage investments. And basically like the retail always pay a significantly higher price, but at those times it was just crazy. The timeline was very short and it was relatively easy to make good investments. But after that, I started joining venture DAOs and that's how actually I, I learned the profession of venture capital investing, or at least I started learning because I started partnering up with other people with significantly more experience than me in the field. And we started making due diligence together and started pooling capital and everyone invested separately at the end, but still we did a lot of things together. And uh, yeah, that helped me tremendously. Those investments were like worse already because I feel like investing is really something which is, if you know how to do it, you should do it alone and you shouldn't listen to anyone because the more people would disagree with you, the bigger the potential for your investment is. And basically, once I started partnering up with people, my investment performance started lowering. And not just that, but it became increasingly difficult to get allocations in projects. Because when I just started out, it was relatively easy to convince founders to let me in because I was kind of like an OG. I, I knew the crypto space in and out. Mm -hmm. I was there for a very long time and they just allowed me to get an angel ticket or even a bigger ticket. But after that, during the peak bull market, it was almost impossible sometimes because I realized that I'm competing with A60Z, I'm competing with Paradigm and like these huge investors and I have literally no chance except if I know them. If I have some connections, maybe they will give me allocation. So I realized network is going to be very important for me down the line. And I also realized that probably the best way to build network is start building because if I can provide value, people will think that I'm valuable and they will at least reply to my messages. And that worked out. I became a builder. I started building stuff for people, like basically all kinds of different stuff. We started hiring a bigger and bigger developer team 
and we built a privacy reserving wallet. We built tools for proof of stake and node operators. We built a bunch of other stuff. And at some point, we also started building stuff for ourselves. And because I participated in a lot of venture DAOs and a lot of DAOs, like just in general, I saw that Colablend is very popular. Token gating was a very highly appreciated concept. And I really appreciated it too, but I felt like it, it's something like stuck in the past. There is a lot to improve on the product and not just the product, but the concept itself. I had many, many ideas to do with this concept. And because I participated in dozens of different projects using Colablend, I realized that if I built something for myself, I can give it to these projects. And initially, this is kind of funny. I wanted to build Guild because I wanted to give it to my portfolio companies so they can outperform the competition. So I can provide better tools for my portfolio companies so they can generate higher returns. <laughs> that was my inspiration and also the network. So yeah, that's how we started building. And that's how we stumbled upon on this idea too of token gating and just building tools for communities in general, like DAOs, as we called them. I love how everything just ties together in this cycle of investing, building, investing, building. It's like this flywheel that keeps feeding into each other. You can work for yourself without doing it by yourself. As a freelancer or independent worker, you're constantly engaging your network and updating your professional profile, but the tools we use to do this haven't evolved in the last 20 years. Quest makes it easier than ever to gather support for a new idea, broadcast updates to your network, and showcase your best work on your profile. It's one link for who you are and what you do. Sign up at rehash.quest.com to follow along with our quest so you never miss an episode or create your own quest today. I'm wondering if you can share a little bit more about your investment strategy. And this is a question that Kyle had on Twitter as well was, he said, I heard a rumor you came out ahead during DeFi summer, which was summer 2020. Share more on the learnings you had during that time, how you leveraged the tech to make money. And do you still do the same things today or has the opportunity passed? You've kind of touched on that a little bit already. But when you say you have to be good at identifying the entry points, the exit points, I think that's the hard part is how do you identify the entry points, the exit points? One good example you gave was when the WHO officially announced that COVID had begun. You knew that was the time to buy, like that was the bottom. And that's a great example of how you identify that. But can you get into more of your strategy around how you identify those entry and exit points? Yeah. So finding the right projects to invest in, I think the best advice to give it stay open-minded. And don't go with the crowd. This is another meme in the space, but it's true. Like you should yeah. do your own research. Yep. That's how you become an investor in the space. You do your own research. You build up your own thesis. You identify certain opportunities. And then whoever says whatever, like you don't care, even if the crowd like hates on each other. And even if you, you disagree with certain elements of a project or something, if you identify the opportunity there, basically, that's the main point then you shouldn't listen to anyone. I think that was very important. And that was easy to me because I didn't really know anyone. So I, I wasn't able to listen to anyone anyway. Like I had friends anonymously, but I, I have a funny example for that. I always have a friend called Balaj. 
And usually this friend is anonymous, but every couple of years, I have a different friend called Bolaj. And because I have the similar feeling with Bolaj's now, I just continue the anonymous relationship with Bolaj all the time. I have certain friends that we don't really care about each other that way. We just share information and trying to keep as objective as possible. And because people build these anonymous relationships online, they don't judge each other. It's literally about just sharing information. And these were the connections that I had before as an investor. And I think that was good that I didn't really have actual influence. But after that, as a founder, especially, it's good to have influence on you because that's how you will identify the flow and also your tribe, like where do you belong in the crypto space? Because the crypto space is super divided and the meta or the winning strategies always change. And for a very long time, when I joined the crypto space, it was all about Bitcoin. If you followed the Bitcoin crowd, you did good. If you started following some other crowd, they usually scammed you and that was bad. That was that simple. But after a while, the Ethereum crowd appeared and a lot of Bitcoin folks thought Ethereum is a scam. It's not going to make it. It's this and that. But after the DAO experimenting in 15 or 16, I don't remember, like after the DAO happened, I realized that there is actually very serious things going on in Ethereum. And I, I, I immediately started researching very deeply Ethereum and basically I identified Ethereum as my tribe, as my crowd. I identified Ethereum as the people that are the most like-minded to me. And since then, I just stick to that crowd. I just follow everything that's happening in the space. But I did that as an outsider for a very long time. So I try to do everything objectively. And this is another important related advice to the previous one is just to try to stay objective as possible. And like actually spreadsheets help with that because you are not going to follow your feelings and stuff. And finding the right prices, I don't think that works emotionally. You have to just look at the facts. Today, for example, I'm reading a lot of people saying that this is the bottom. This is the best opportunity to buy now. And you just look at the chart and you see that we just started to bottom. Like it will probably stay that way for a while. So you just have to look at previous thing, how it works out. And trying to stay objective is super, super difficult. But you should always look at the numbers. For example, I decided that Ethereum is my crowd because I realized that the, the developers are in Ethereum. And once I realized that, it was very easy to actually like join this. And that was an objective decision as well. But identifying the exits, I think it's more difficult. It usually should depend on your personal goals. Like if you hit a certain goal and that justifies an exit, then you should probably follow that. But also there are many, many signs like when fundamentals starting to disappear from investing, like people start following the emotions and like memes and stuff, but usually that's a good exit point in general, because if, even if it's going to like go 2x or something from there, it will probably crash very seriously from there too. I think exits are hard because the human greed comes out a yeah. little bit, you know, and you always want it's more and more and more. It's absolutely about greed. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. But that's really hard to overcome. And I think that's the right strategy is just to set an exit point for yourself. Say we hit this number and this is where I'm exiting and then commit to that so that you don't let yourself get carried away and end up worse off than you would have if you had just committed to whatever rule you set for yourself. You mentioned DAOs and DAOs introducing you to this Ethereum space and getting you interested more in this Ethereum community. You've been involved and bullish on DAOs for a, a very long time, since the beginning. What's your view on the current state of DAOs today? Yeah, so I think we never 
found the true definition of DAOs. I, I kind of have a lot of controversial views on DAOs. Love it. Let's hear them. I can't wait. <laughs> okay. So I think I, I define DAO like DAO is any group of people led by some on-chain principles or rules. And basically that's it. If you are driven by on-chain principles or rules, then you are a DAO. And you could be democratic, you could be tyrannical, you can do anything, but if it's a group of people and you have certain agreements that are put on chain, then that's a DAO. And I still identify Ethereum as the most successful DAO of all time so far. And then also probably one of the biggest DAOs as well. The Ethereum space just overall, because basically we are governed around fully on chain rules. Like now it's proof of stake and the rules are very simple. You follow the rules, you are part of this community, and we are all like aligned. We have the same goals, we have ultrasound money, and it's pretty cool. It's kind of like an internet tribe. Even before cryptocurrencies existed, I always belonged to some internet crowd. So I always belonged to some of these tribes, whether these were game crowds or hacking crowds, programming crowds, or all sorts of different stuff. I was always part of these very strong online communities, well aligned for specific goals. And I think that's the reason why DAOs exist and should exist that because now we have this beautiful thing, this supercomputer called Ethereum, and we can program a lot of stuff and not just our financials, but a lot of other things as well, like reputation and like a bunch of identity related stuff. Social media is always already here and there's going to be a lot of interesting things on chain. So would you say that the DAO itself doesn't have to operate fully on-chain for it to qualify as a DAO in your mind. It just has to kind of be governed by these on-chain principles. Or this is controversial, but I don't yeah. think that DAOs have to be fully on-chain. I don't think that DAOs have to be democratic. Or This is the most controversial part. I don't think that DAOs even have to be fair to everyone. DAOs can even be evil. Like, why not? I, I can imagine, like, evil DAOs exist. It doesn't really matter. The common thing that all DAOs share is that they are driven by these on-chain principles. And that those principles give them a shared goal. And very often a sense of ownership as well, like ownership over the protocol. But that's not a requirement either. Like you can participate in a DAO where you don't have any ownership or sense of ownership. If we're talking about the market, where would you say DAOs sit today? Like have DAOs peaked already? Or where on the <laughs> charts are DAOs? No, I, I think we passed the legendary phase. Like we will remember the old times as like and MetaCartel and a bunch of other DAOs as like legends of the crypto and the DAO space. But uh, I think those haven't even started really. Like to become a DAO, it's not enough to just have these on-chain parts, but you also have to identify yourself as a DAO. Otherwise, it's just other people telling you that it's a DAO then basically you have to identify yourself as a DAO and basically not too many organizations identify themselves as DAOs nowadays. So therefore, I think DAOs are just before the beginning. And even if we won't call them DAOs, there is going to be some word that we are going to use for the on-chain organizations. Yeah. Maybe on-chain organizations. I would love that. Yeah, that's so straightforward and simple and to the point. Would you consider Guild to be a DAO? Yeah, definitely. I'm really in love with this industry. I don't think I would ever leave the cryptocurrency space. And everything that I know about investing too is related to tokens and related to on-chain mechanisms, mechanism design and a bunch of other stuff. So 
I don't really want to leave this behind for some other opportunities. I kind of want to do it the right way and bring everything that is identifies as guilds to on-chain at some point and maybe even say that it's a DAO, but that's something that time will tell if we ever called guild. <laughs> when you think of a company or more of a structured organization, something mm -hmm. that's more than just an online community, what are some of the advantages and what are some of the disadvantages you see to an organization like Guild being a DAO versus being a traditional company? Yeah, I think the most interesting part is around tokenization and whatever that means, like it's fungible, non-fungible or whatever. But tokens, I think, very powerful tools. And tokens are like an iceberg. Like we haven't even realized 10% or like 5% of what's possible with tokens. And, and not just tokens, but just putting certain mechanisms on chain is super earnest stage at this point. So I will definitely want to experiment with that. And I think other people should experiment with that too, because it could allow and enable incredible things. Stuff like a permissionless culture, where basically no one is in control about who is able to join or from where or do what. But also like other stuff, like full transparency around certain things. I think that's super, super cool that everything that we put on chain nowadays is fully transparent. I know that's going to change very soon with privacy reserving like smart contracts, but still I, I really value transparency in the space. I, I always hated that about online communities in general back in the days that even if I joined the community, I never knew actually if they are not ripping us off or someone is not evil because we can keep them in check. But if the, in a DAO, the treasury is on chain, we can immediately identify if someone steals the money of the DAO, we can tell and they cannot get away with just lies or something. I think that's super, super cool. So like permissionless, transparency, and just in general, like programmable things is super interesting to me, like automating certain elements of the social interactions and whatnot. I'm curious too about team building in general at Guild. This is a question mm -hmm. I think Gary had who nominated you for the podcast <laughs> about like team building at Guild, what your strategy has been with that. And then Sort of a related question from Kyle on Twitter was about how you've been able to build this culture around Gen Z. And I know Guild is a very Gen Z yeah. heavy company. I think most of the employees at Guild, if not all, are Gen Z. The office space you're in right now, like the physical office space is a Gen Z office space. So yeah. tell me more about your strong belief in the Gen Z demographic and age group and how you've used that to strategically build this team you have at Guild. Yeah, that was really a strategic decision, but I think all of this is coming from my board game times. And I didn't start building a flat organism because I believed in some like blockchain philosophy agenda or something or start because of decentralization or something. Like what I said before, I started building it this way because I realized that when I'm a game creator and I create a structure, which a lot of other people join, it's the best that people can contribute to. And it's the best if they can like overwrite even my decisions in certain times. Because when, when I saw that my sister or my little brother started crying because of something, of course I changed the rules. I didn't want him to feel bad. I realized that early that it's very important to everyone to feel happy and feel comfortable about being part of something if we work together and contribute together. So even if I'm the game creator and I brought this to life at the first base, it's a community effort to build a good game. And I realized that and I, I knew that I'm going to build my company that way too. 
maybe I will start the, the board game, but we will build it together. And everyone will have the equal chances to say about everything. I, initially, it was overly idealistic, optimistic. Like we literally told early employees that you can work on anything, anytime. I think <laughs> that was serious. People were like, what? And you will get a good salary. People were like, what? This is a crazy place. But obviously the way it worked is the paper keys. Like I told them, this is this privacy bullet. This is this staking something. You can work on this or you can work on that or... You can even do your hobby project if we can bring that into this space somehow, or you can even like reprogram the ATM. Some people spend weeks on that company to reprogram that ATM, but now we have the dopest ATM and the game got better. The collective experience is much, much better. So I learned that at an early stage and I actually wanted to bring this into the space and not the other way. I wanted to spread the word that people let other folks contribute, come together and don't act like capitalists, even if this is the viable capitalist dream, which I ever experienced, and I'm not against capitalism at all, but the basic principles of giving chance to everyone is very important to me. And then I also realized that when building those games and spectating my, my younger brothers and younger sisters, I, I was often thinking, gosh, they are smarter than me. Like my little brother is freaking awesome. He knows that better than me. How did he figure that out? I didn't even know that this could be part of this game or this mm-hmm. mechanism. And I think that was the driving force that, especially after I failed multiple times as an entrepreneur before, I knew that my next company going to be Gen Z. Young folks going to tell me, what should we do? I'm a young guy too, but still, I believe that it's very important to give the opportunity for everyone to let their voice be heard and their ideas and everything. And often, I I think it's just fun too. Like basically, we are playing a huge game here, so... Obviously, it's easier to have a lot of fun if it's just the same demographics. It's basically just Gen Z. So even though like I believe in diversity, I think it's also very important to create a culture where everyone feels connected. Everyone feels like they belong to that culture. So yeah, but that's that's also like very difficult to... For sure. And you, you said at first, you know, it was almost too idealistic. Over time, I'm sure challenges have arisen with telling people they can build yeah. whatever they want. Like there needs to yeah. be some sort of structure. And this is something we've seen in DAOs as well is when there yeah. is no leadership or no hierarchy whatsoever. And it's completely flat. This is where chaos can ensue. And people are like, well, maybe we need some game mods up in here because it's total chaos. Otherwise, have you noticed that with guild and then what are some guardrails that you've had to put in place as the creator of the game so that everybody can have a good time but also function so that's a very difficult topic and honestly i think you would need to interview my little brother to answer (laughs) that because i'm good at starting things and creating this culture but after that i'm always after the next new thing Mm -hmm. and my brother was the person who really matured our culture and matured the company as well and created basic management structure, not the way you would imagine, but basically his own way, like started organizing people more and more. And we still have very good rules. I think like you can still work from anywhere. You usually, if you tell that you don't want to do something, you're not forced to do that. And we just have the same vibe, but at the same time, because of Guild's success and because we realized that this is almost a couple of times in a lifetime opportunity, we have to make this straight down. Like before, as my brother told me that like when we started the company, we were all cowboys. And then 
uh, skills started to becoming more and more successful, we realized that now we have to turn into commando groups. Like we have to learn that turtle formation and stick together and be very disciplined about what we do. Because once we started becoming successful, I realized that people copy, like they all just start doing the same shit. Mm -hmm. And it doesn't matter that we did it first or we figure out something. If something is cool that we did, that other people would definitely copy. And that's cool. That's good. But it became more and more difficult to innovate and keep everything together at the same time. Because when you have hundreds of thousands of users onboarding to your platform every month or every week, your infrastructure starting to becoming difficult to maintain and you have to scale. And there are many countless difficulties building an early stage companies. And having to deal with like cowboys is not something you want to do during these times. So it was a very difficult period. It lasted six months, like early this year or something. And we had to let some people go as well. We also have to hire some people who never experienced the culture before. Basically, the company transformed a lot. But I think we are still in the phase somehow to figure out the final culture of this company. But at the same time, I think we did a good job on becoming this commando team. And I think initially when we started Guild with all the cowboys, they all like followed their own rules and shipped very fast. I often didn't even have to tell certain feature requests or something because they knew that specific territory so well that they built their own territories in a certain direction. But once it becomes more mature, we have to agree at least on certain things. And we did that. We implemented more nuanced, more sophisticated structures, but to get into the very specifics of this, and I will stop bullshitting here because I know that I'm just bullshitting about this because it's literally was my little brother who figured out how to deal with a lot of very intelligent, highly talented young folks, basically, to get her. What's his name? Let's shout him out because he deserves Bru it. Bruno. Bruno. All right, let's get Bruno yeah. on the podcast next season because I honestly would love to have a conversation with him about this. I think it's one of the most difficult things that people in the Web3 space have not figured out is we have all these young people in the space who don't like the traditional corporate hierarchical structure. That's why they're here. That's why they're in DAOs. And that's why yeah. DAOs are attractive to them. But we haven't figured out DAOs either, right? We usher all of these people into DAOs and we're like, you have so much opportunity here to do whatever you want, make whatever impact you want. And then it's just pure chaos. And we don't know where these DAOs are going. We don't know what the goals are. It's just a bunch of people doing random stuff. So I think finding that balance is super difficult. And I, I don't know that I really can think of a good example of either a company or a DAO who's really figured out that formula of where the balance yeah. is between the two. Guild might be yeah, the closest to that that I've seen. <laughs> that's very kind of you. I don't want people to be idealistic about the crypto or like web-free space that we can skip the difficult conversations mm -hmm. here. I think for success, you have to experience some very tough decisions and tough times. But I think what differs from here is the pace of the industry and the amount of information you get during the bull market, for example, and also the dynamics, the way things work. You can experience very cool periods of working for a crypto company and I think that that makes it very unique experience that it's literally an adventure and there are heroes, there are demigods mm -hmm. and there are tribes and it's a super cool experience sometimes. 
but it's not easy usually as a builder. So like you will definitely have to do certain stuff that you don't want to. You will definitely have to accept sometimes rules that you don't want to. And I think that's what people have to understand is that it's okay to ask very difficult questions and confront even the demigods to get there, to make it in this space. And because in crypto, you can actually do that and you will probably not going to fire because you question someone or something. I think that's a very cool thing. We have this culture. We want to continue this culture. I specifically want people to question me and if they are too scared to do it face to face, just do it another way. But the point is that they should question things. They see that something is going off or something. It's not good. I got a lot of critique from the inside and my brother got a lot of critique too, because there are certain tough periods and we have to let people go and stuff like that. But then if we can overcome all that and get back to the origins and realize that we are here because we are building very dope stuff. And if we can do that in a more and more organized way, I think that will lead to on-chain organizations eventually with these little pods working together very strongly. And I think what the Ethereum Foundation does really well is being independent from as many builder groups as possible. And like basically these strong groups starting to form all over the world, literally just nerds and programmer clubs where people starting to work together and get used to each other's style and everything. And if somehow we can coordinate very different groups globally together, based on some on-chain principles, that's going to be an incredible unlock. And it already is. We can see that's the Ethereum space. It's a huge unlock. Video powers the internet, but building with the most engaging form of media shouldn't be complicated or expensive. LivePeer suite of developer tools powered by the LivePeer network make it easy to build performance video experiences affordably, at scale, and with no vendor lock-in. Designed to give developers the freedom to innovate, creators autonomy from platforms, and viewers a choice in their experience. Visit livepeer.org to get started today. All right, as we wrap up, I want to jump over to some of our questions from the Twitter community. So we've got a bunch of questions from Kyle, again, from Gitcoin. And the first (laughs) one I'll call out, I'm actually going to combine these two. So two questions from him. What public goods would you like to see built in the world? And then as a follow-up to that, if Guild was a public good, what would you encourage people to build on top of it? Yeah. The second question is relatively easy, education. And and I think at some point we will turn to education and we'll we'll become fully open source. And and we actually plan that, not in like a two-year horizon or something like that, but a little bit longer. But eventually guilt has to become a public good because fundamentally the technology that we build at some point should be fully privacy preserving. It's still at this daily self-service and very accessible to everyone all over the world. But still at some point it has to be independent from any single organization. So I think Guild will become at some point a public good. The road there is going to be difficult. I have some plans already, but we'll see how it plays out. But I want people to build education. I think both Bruno and me, like the most passionate about educating young folks, getting them opportunities. That's what we've done all along. This small company is about getting young folks together, giving them the best opportunity possible 
they work our ass off just to get the best opportunity and then give them. And they were first the cowboy, now the commandos, but still the opportunity is theirs. The opportunity is ours. And I want Gil to continue this ethos and help more and more people being onboarded and learn their way into certain professions or certain ways of contributing some form of value. And not even just the cryptocurrency space, but humanity at some point. So yeah, yeah I think education is the single most important one. And just broadly in the word, I will be like brutally honest about this too. Like I'm currently not in a phase of my life when I'm very much focused on public goods. I do donate money every year, usually anonymously and not just one place, but many places, but it's not my main focus. So I, I don't have an expertise in public is that's what I'm saying. Mm-hmm. But at some point, I definitely want to focus on this more. But currently, the organizations I'm funding and the first organization I found, I think I can tell that was the Wikimedia Foundation. Like I was fascinated about knowledge sharing. So I started funding the Wikipedia essentially. And since then, everything where knowledge sharing is intense, like local hacker spaces, educational programming organizations, or just providing laptops to kids and stuff like that. That's the kind of thing that I like to see being built or just like to do myself. And I I probably have a critique against this as well, because it's not enough to give the opportunity to learn programming and to get people on board. You also need very good mentors. And that's why I'm a little bit careful for now, because it's very difficult to identify people that you can really trust, that they will pass along the knowledge in a way that it's not harmful to youngsters. So yeah, it's very difficult, but everything around knowledge sharing education is very important to me. Yeah, I I think now is the time to think about that too, because as we saw with the last bull run, during bull runs, education becomes a really important thing because you have all of these newcomers coming into the space, but it also becomes a thing that everyone tries to become an educator. And like you said, it's hard to parse through all the noise and find the actual signal and to not be taken astray with false signals and false noise. That's why I think right now, while we're at the bottom or reaching the bottom or whatever, is the time to really start thinking about how we're going to tackle that and how we're going to manage that when the next bull run comes about. And there is such a big need for education and everyone's going to be out there trying to provide quote unquote education. Usually speaking, I I believe in mentorship. I think to really help someone with knowledge, you have to know that person relatively well. That way you can pass along the right information at the right time. Otherwise, it's sometimes very difficult. And even good faith can turn into harm if you provide information at math time or something like that. It's hard to find mentors though, right? That's the challenge for newcomers in the space. You don't know anyone, so how do you find the mentor? So I think that's the big challenge. Yeah, and especially good mentors are usually very busy. But I would encourage everyone to keep buzzing those mentors. If I don't really have business with someone, but he or she keeps bugging me, that like, Write me back, write me back. I, I'm doing this now. Please look at this, look at this, look at that, look at this. And if they consistently do that, I, I think young folks should do that more often because eventually it's going to impress that person and that person will start helping you. Even if someone is, you feel like ghosting you or something, maybe they will ghost you in the first eight 
messages, but then at the night times, <laughs> maybe they will become your mentor. So I think you're right. I did a lot of that too when I was younger and I think it paid off for sure. I mean, yeah. I'm sure I offended some people as well who were annoyed <laughs> with my constant bugging, but that's fine because at some point you'll impress somebody. And it's the timing thing too. It's like maybe the first eight messages, you caught me at a bad time where yeah. I didn't have time to sit down and read your article. But the ninth message, you know, I'm like on a Saturday doing nothing sitting at my computer, I'm like, oh, yeah, I, I do have, to, I have nothing better to do right now, but to read whatever you sent me. <laughs> and I do it. And it's yeah. actually amazing. And all of a sudden, I'm like, wow, yeah, I'm, I'm going to respond to you because you caught me at yeah, the right time. So exactly. timing's a big thing. It, it, too. Works. Uh, it definitely oh. works. All right. I've got one last question for you from okay. Twitter. This is again from Kyle. He says, what excites you most about the reputation and community building space? And then is Guild where you want it to be? How do you see it evolving? You've kind of talked about that last part already a little bit. Yeah, but that was a very long-term vision, like education and turning Guild into to a public good is a very, very long-term vision. Like mm -hmm. first, we have to create the foundations and I'm talking about the financial background of the organization as well to actually get there. It's relatively easy or at least easier to talk about public goods when someone has a big treasury, when someone is bootstrapping and paying the team monthly. You have to be very careful about money. It's much more difficult to think about public goods. But answering the question of reputation, I think it's going to be on chain. Like literally, you cannot really remove stuff from the blockchain. And for a lot of stuff on reputation, I think it's actually a good thing. It's going to be an interesting use case for sure. It will help with identifying talent and overcome some communicational difficulties. Because often when very talented people join the crypto space, they get a little bit isolated because people are too afraid to bug other people. And even if they message them, they got ghosted and then they don't message anymore because they think that they did something wrong or something. Then launching reputation can help with that because once we have a bunch of skills proved and achievements proved on chain, the large organizations and the big guns and the demigods will be able to identify those people who are really doing something incredible. It's just they cannot communicate. They find it difficult to reach someone. And I think that way it's going to bring a huge progress for the development. And not just development, but like all sorts of different parts of the machine. Like more talented people will find those companies who care about this on-chain reputation. That would be a huge unlock. I really hope to see that as yeah. well, because that's the big gap that we are facing today. And then finally, yeah. Roz, our last segment on every episode is called Explain Your Tweet. This is where I pull one of your tweets that may be a little Ooh, cryptic no. or whatever, spicy. <laughs> you're pretty safe, honestly. Like, you're pretty okay. clean. I think if I can give you a weird tweet that I had, I think that was probably my most viral tweet. I got almost a thousand followers or something out of wow. that. Because there was a Nomad hack. I don't know if you know the Nomad Bridge. It's like a cross-chain infrastructure. The thing is that they got hacked for like 150 million. And that was a very weird moment for me in the cryptocurrency space because I never attempt to do anything like that before. But the thing that happened is I was bored at night. I was just scrolling Twitter and I, I found someone desperate saying that there is a chance that a hack is going on around this bridge. And they already see the tens of millions of dollars left out of the you know, 150 million wow. and someone is leaking the shit. And I, I was bored. So I looked up immediately the transactions and what's happening. 
And I realized that it's a really stupid thing. Like I can replicate this. I can do this hack myself. And I only had my phone because the computer I had, it was in my office. So as I was in my pyjama, I started running with the mobile phone in my hand in the middle of the night on the streets back to the office to like replicate the, the exploit basically just to make sure that this is actually happening. Yeah. And because I was so curious, I started replicating it on my phone and I was successfully banging. So I actually did an exploit on my phone in pyjama at the middle of wow. the night. And I made a tweet about that. And because I was the first one during the hack that started messaging Leave the Lobster group. It's like an OG DeFi group. And I started messaging people that like, it's super easy to replicate and please do it and I'd give back the money. And basically I, I was messaging people to send back the money immediately. And I was the first one to speak out that like people please give back the money, make the exploit and let's send them back because it was easy to replicate, but it was at least for me too little time to actually like write a script or something because I'm not used to these kind of things. Like I don't do these kind of things, but I was able to do it manually and I got a very unique NFT that a white hat, a wizard white hat basically that wow. I, I gave back myself. So that is a super cool experience. That is super cool. When did this happen? Like a year ago, something okay. like that. I'll have to go back and dig up the tweet. Your tweets are not searchable, which you probably do on purpose. I don't know why is that, but honestly, like I'm a little bit insecure about my tweets because I'm not a good shitposter. I don't know how to shitpost. That's a skill that I'm completely missing. And also I don't really identify things that are you to like actually like put it out and like tweet it out. And this accident or the things that I just told you, that was probably my only Birthday tweet at work. That's a really worth it to put out there. All the other things are just like trying to figure out how to communicate in social media. I never, I've, I've never know how to be good at that, to be honest. I don't have a Facebook. I don't have an Instagram. I don't do anything else. I only have a Twitter and I only use it for professional purposes to follow the crypto space basically and learn. Like every single morning, I, I learn the entire timeline and I'm, I'm doing it in Forecaster now too and, and yeah. some other places, some other sources and that's why you guys have reka on your team right yeah that's her job that's yeah. why reka's there she's searchable <laughs> she's very searchable and very shit posty and very me me like all of the above she's got all of it yeah. so yeah, yeah you've got all the bases covered on the guild team it's funny because i've been trying to learn twitter for more than 10 years now I started using crypto Twitter literally from the very beginning. I'm following Kobe and like some of yeah. these big OG names literally from the very beginning. But I was quick to even become a reply guy. I can't even do a reply guy. It's not even worth your time, especially nowadays in the bear market. Twitter is so dead. Nowadays, Twitter is just full of spam bots. The algorithm I mean, is so A whack. lot of things are happening. It's just more difficult to extract the information or find the yeah. gems. But a lot of interesting things are happening right sure. now too. It's just becoming more and more difficult to get those informations. But yeah, Erika is learning fast. <laughs> and she just started this, by the way, a couple of years ago. Like she didn't use Twitter before. So I think she's doing good. She's doing fantastic. I was fascinated by her background too. Like she was going to be a vet. She went to vet school. Yeah. Like that whole thing is... She's a very multifaceted person as well. And listeners, yeah, you I can go back and listen to her episode. It was last season, season four, episode one to know more about her background. But yeah, she's very... I'm not sure if she told you, she probably didn't tell you, but I liked her a lot. And I messaged her to join my company initially because when we were young, we were both like uh, popular kids going out all the time, knowing a lot of people. And like, she was really, really cool. Like she was a super cool girl. And 
she yeah. was walking around barefoot all the time. Like she was a hippie. And I can see that. <laughs> and she was literally a hippie, like one of the biggest hippies. And I'm not saying she wasn't like a drug taker or something. She was just like like a free spirit. She was a super free spirit, barefoot all the time and like singing and dancing. Like I really liked her. And after I saw her in Forbes and I started talking to her, I realized that she's a bat now. Like she, she was a hippie. But now she's a bad, like complete opposite. So she's super organized now. But I knew that I need someone who is super organized, but also have that hippie spirit. I just love that. So that's why we teamed up with Reka. I love that. She did not tell me about her hippie past. So I will have to ask <laughs> her about that. But she did send me some never before seen photos of her as a vet. And vet scrubs <laughs> and living that life. I still have that on my computer that I'll, I'll save and pull out for some purpose later on down the line. <laughs> Thank you so much, Ziana, for this opportunity. Thank it was really you. great to, to come to our podcast. Yeah, and you've got to thank Gary, too, for nominating you and thank all the voters. <laughs> there are so many people that voted you on. Sometimes it's like one or two people go all in on yeah. one person. I don't know if you know how the voting works, but when we do the yeah, joke down... For sure. Yeah, it's like yeah. we issue however many governance tokens there will be for like however many episodes there will be that season. And then you can use those votes however you want. So for instance, like this season, we I think have 12 episodes, which means everyone gets airdropped 12 voting tokens. And you can either use all 12 oh, tokens on one person or one vote on 12 different people, whatever you want to do. And there were so many different people that sent votes your way, which is why you got number one on the leaderboard. But Really, you got to thank the community for their support and getting you on the podcast. And then you got to pay it forward next season with nominating Bruno and whoever else you think would be good. For the yeah, podcast. can't wait. Can't yeah, wait we'll get that. them on. Joe, really grateful it's, to be here. Joke race is always a fun time. I, that's probably my favorite part is is the joke race week. So we'll get you involved in that. I confirm. Last thing before you go, tell people where they can find you if they want to follow you personally. And then also where people can go to learn more about Guild. Yeah, Guild XYZ is the Twitter handle. I'm a leading scientist without the G, actually just leading scientist. And yeah, I think that's it. I think I have the replies turned on. But yeah, I have protected tweets now, but uh, I will definitely follow back and communicate if someone is interested and, and reaching out. Nice. Love it. We'll include those in the show notes too to make it easy for people to click through. Thank you again so much, Roz, for taking the time. Thank you, everybody, for tuning in to our last episode of the season. And make sure you follow us on Twitter at RehashWeb3. Check in on us to make sure that you don't miss the next process of guest nominations and voting. Start thinking about which guests you want to nominate for season six of the podcast. I can't believe we're on season six already, but that's coming up soon. So start thinking about that. And we'll see you all back in a few weeks for the start of season six of Rehash. Peace out. Thank you for tuning in to this episode of Rehash. Rehash is hosted, produced, and edited by me, Diana Chen, and sponsored by Lens, LivePeer, Quest, and Lore. Rehash is also supported by our community of NFT holders who curate our guest lineup each season. To get involved, head over to our website at rehashweb3.xyz and collect this episode as an NFT. Anyone who collects an episode becomes part of the Rehash community and will be able to nominate guests for future seasons. To learn more about how to become a guest on the podcast, go to rehashweb3.xyz slash podcast 
And to learn more about sponsoring the podcast, go to rehashweb3.xyz slash sponsor. Finally, be sure to follow us on Twitter, Instagram, and TikTok at rehashweb3 or on Lens at rehash.lens. And don't forget to rate, review, and subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts.